Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. In this week's episode, we join the Doctor and Leela as they arrive at a lighthouse and face the horror of Fang Rock. As usual, we're discussing the Doctor, companions and villains and give our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-A-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. But first, I shall regale you, as always, with the story. Please do, please do. <laughs> I shall. Part 1. Off the coast of England, on the island of Fang Rock during the early 20th century, one of the lighthouse keepers watches as a purple streak shoots across the sky and lands in the sea. The keeper, whose name is Vince, calls another keeper, Reuben, and tells him what happened. Reuben says that it might have been a meteor, and they are joined by the head keeper, Ben. The elder duo good-naturedly mock the younger keeper before Ben says that he is going on break and for Vince to forget about it. Reuben joins Ben and they discuss the improvements in lighthouse technology throughout the years. Vince calls down and tells them to come up as there is a sudden fog after appearing. They go up to take a look and they are amazed at how thick it is and Vince says that it came from the direction of where he saw the purple light land. Ben tells Vince to go and sound the warning siren and after he goes Reuben expresses his own concerns about the mysterious nature of the fog. Just then the light goes out and Ben goes to check what happened. Meanwhile, the TARDIS lands close by and Leela and the Doctor emerge, with the Doctor saying that they are not at their intended destination of Brighton. Leela again chides the Doctor for his lack of control of the TARDIS, but he's distracted when he sees the unlit lighthouse nearby. As they make their way towards it, Leela expresses her concerns that something seems wrong. Inside the lighthouse generator room, Ben looks to see what caused the fault, but can't find anything. Suddenly the light comes back on and he makes his way back upstairs. After he leaves, the exit door opens and a green glow starts to fill the room. He goes back and tells Vince what happened before going to enter the fault in the logbook. Vince goes back upstairs to join Reuben, but a few moments later the light goes out again. Ben goes down to investigate and is attacked by the green glowing entity. Up at the top of the lighthouse, Reuben again states that there is something unnatural with the fog, and Vince says that he will go down and check on Ben. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Leela enter the lighthouse, and the Doctor also wonders what is causing the fault with the machinery. They make their way upstairs and encounter Vince. The Doctor tells him that they got lost in the fog and landed on the far side of the island. Vince then brings them up to the kitchen and offers them some food, and the doctor asks about the fault. Vince says that he doesn't know the workings of the generator, and that that is Ben's responsibility. The doctor says that there was no sign of him downstairs, and Vince says that he must have gone outside. Leela refused this by saying that she would have hurt him, causing the doctor to become alarmed. He tells Vince that he will take a look at the generator, and asks him to keep an eye on Leela. Vince offers to make her a cup of tea, but she said that she would prefer warmer clothes, as the dress she is wearing is damp due to the fog. She starts to strip off and Vince rushes to find her something to wear, shielding his eyes as he does so. Down in the generator room, the doctor looks for Ben with no success. Suddenly the light comes back on and the doctor finds Ben's body. Vince and Leela come down and Vince is shocked when the doctor shows him Ben's body. He tells him that he died from a massive electric shock. The doctor tells Vince to go tell Reuben and after he leaves, Leela confirms with the doctor that the death was not accidental. The doctor says that whatever killed him is hiding somewhere or in or around the lighthouse. He then finds Ben's lantern, which appears to have been melted and bent out of shape by something. Up on the lamp deck, Vince tells Reuben what happened, and Reuben says that the Doctor and Leela could be spies. Vince is sceptical of the statement, but Reuben says that they arrived at the same time as the fog and the power drains. He says that he will go down to speak to them, and promises that in the morning he'll send for a boat to take Ben's body away. Reuben finds the Doctor and Leela in the kitchen, and tells the Doctor to stay away from the telegraph machine. Sensing hostility and wariness from the old keeper, the Doctor asks flat out if he thinks that they are responsible for Ben's death, and Reuben says he intends to send for the police to question them. He then picks up a shroud to cover Ben's body. 
After he leaves, Leela says that they need to hunt down whatever killed Ben, but he says it is too dangerous and instead says that he will go talk to Vince. However, after he leaves, Leela goes down to the generator room and sneaks out to search around the lighthouse. Up on the lamp deck, Vince tells the doctor about the purple light he saw. Ruben comes up and interrupts the conversation, telling Vince to go down and get something to eat. As he goes down, he hears a strange crackling sound coming from the generator room and goes down to find Ben's body missing. He comes up to Reuben and tells him what happened, but Leela bursts in and asks if he saw anything come in. Suddenly Reuben tells him that the doctor saw a light approaching and that his ship is going to hit the rocks nearby. He and Leela rush up to the lamp deck and fire flares before watching helplessly as the ship crashes into the rocks and begins to sink. Part 2 Reuben says that there may be survivors and tells Vince to come with him whilst telling the doctor to stay behind and operate the warning siren. The doctor delegates the task to Leela before following the others downstairs. Reuben tells the doctor to gather a length of rope from the generator room, but when he does so, he, the air crackles with electricity from an unknown source. Unable to investigate for the moment, the doctor makes a note of it and follows Reuben and Vince to look for survivors. A few moments later, the light turns out again, leading Reuben to complain about how they would never have had that problem if they were still using oil for light. The doctor silently comments that that would not be the only problem that they would have avoided if they had continued using oil. Meanwhile, Leela looks down from the lamp deck and through the fog sees a large green glowing jellyfish-like creature slithering over the rocks. A short while later, the Doctor and the others return with a small group of survivors made of the boat's owner, Lord Parmerdale, his secretary, Adelaide, and his friend, Colonel Skinsale. Reuben tells Vince to see after them whilst he goes back up to the lamp deck. Vince sees to Adelaide first, much to the annoyance of Parmerdale, who demands to be given dry clothes and brandy. Reuben arrives up top and overhears Leela talking to the Doctor about what she saw. He tells them that they are being stalked by the fabled beast of Fang Rock. The Doctor and Leela then go downstairs and the Doctor asks where is the other survivor, the coxswain, Harker, and Parmerdale says that he stayed behind to secure the lifeboat they arrived in. Skincell says that it was Harker that saved them before alluding to Parmerdale's poor seamanship being the reason that they crashed. Vince says that he needs to go stoke the boiler for the generator and the Doctor sends Leela with him. Adelaide comments on the unusual nature of Leela aiding in the boiler maintenance and the Doctor tells him of Ben's death. Palmerdale insists on getting to London in time for the financial markets opening, which is why they were sailing in such a rush, but the doctor says that there is no way off the island during the fog. In the generator room, Leela tells Vince she hears something outside and instructs the Yarvis non-keeper to get the doctor and bring him down. She takes up the coal shovel as someone comes in, dragging something, but the doctor arrives and tells her that it's all right. He says the man's name is Harker and that he is carrying what the remains of Ben's body, which he says that he found floating in the water nearby. The doctor tells him to go up and join the others in the kitchen, and Leela asks if it is the work of the beast that Reuben spoke of. The doctor says that the beast is just a local superstition, but he wants to do a post-mortem on the body. They hear Vince coming downstairs, and they hide the body to prevent alarming him further. Vince is adamant that Ben must have risen from the dead, believing the stories that Reuben had earlier told him about lost spirits who died unusually. However, the doctor tells him that Ben must have been stunned by the electricity, and when he woke up, he was confused and must have left the lighthouse and drowned. Vince accepts the explanation and apologises for his attitude. After he leaves, Leela asks why the doctor lied, but he replies that he doesn't know what the truth is at the moment. Up in the kitchen, Palmerdale orders Harker to take them to the mainland after he's eaten, but the coxswain refuses, leading Skinsale to jokingly say that he is staging a mutiny. Palmerdale blames the lighthouse for their current predicament, but Skinsale and Harker say that even if it was working, they were still travelling too fast in the fog. The doctor comes up and tells Harker to get some rest before leaving with a lantern. Palmerdale comments on the Doctor's mental faculties, and Adelaide voices her opinion on Leela and her looks, leading Skinsale to express an admiration for the Seventeen Warrior. 
Skinsale then uses the speaking tube to call up to Reuben on the lamp deck to ask if there is a private room for Adelaide and Reuben tells him that she can sleep in the bunkhouse. Vincent points out a lantern in the fog and Reuben says that it must be the doctor and Leela. Downstairs, Skinsale returns from bringing Adelaide to the sleeping quarters and comments on Palmerdale's frustrations. Palmerdale says he stands to lose the money he would gain using the secret information Skinsale gave him and threatens to blackmail him in recompense for the loss. Skinsale advises against it, as he is a military veteran of good standing and would sue him for everything that he has. Out in the fog, Leela shows the doctor where she saw the creature, and the doctor notes on his compass that there is an electromagnetic field in the area, which is strong enough to kill someone upon direct contact. They find some dead fish nearby, and Leela asks what it is. The doctor says that whatever it is, it's dangerous, and they'd better get back to the lighthouse. Unbeknownst to them, they are watched by the creature as they leave. They arrive back at the lighthouse and the doctor says that the creature must be an alien in origin and probably stole Ben's body to examine it. He then says that they are in serious danger as the creature would have learned all their weaknesses by now and could attack at any moment. Leela says that they must warn the others and prepare to defend the lighthouse, but the doctor warns her against telling them who they really are unless they turn on them as well. Upstairs, Parmadale finishes writing a note and wakes up Parker, ordering him to send a message on the radio telegraph so that he can still use the information from the skin sale in order to become rich. Harker refuses, saying that the crash was his fault and lays the death of the crew at his feet before starting to strangle him. Skinsale is woken up by the sound of the fight and tries to break it up. The doctor arrives and helps Skinsale before telling them about the threat to the lighthouse. He tells them that no one is to leave, but Palmerdale treats his warning as superstitious nonsense. Reuben arrives and tells them about the beast, alluding to a previous calamity that befell the lighthouse 80 years earlier, resulting in the death of two keepers and the insanity of the surviving one. He then goes down to stoke the boiler, and after he leaves, Parmadale continues his tirade about them being superstitious fools. Leela threatens to kill him if he doesn't listen to the doctor, but then stops, saying that it has gotten suddenly cold, like the time when Ben was attacked. Skinsale says that he doesn't feel anything, but the doctor tells him about Leela's heightened senses. Adelaide arrives and asks what's going on, when suddenly the lights go dim. Then from the generator room, they hear Reuben's screams. Part 3 the doctor and Leela rush down to the generator room but see no sign of Reuben, but they notice the door to the outside open. Leela says the creature must have taken him and they go outside to investigate. Up in the kitchen, Adelaide starts to break down and Skinsale does his best to comfort her. Harker takes a lamp and heads downstairs, ignoring Parmadale's suggestion that they all stay together. Harker arrives in the generator room and goes outside looking for the doctor and Leela, but sees no sign of them. He goes back inside and sees Reuben emerge from the coal cellar, but he walks past him as if in a trance, telling Harker to leave him be. Reuben then makes his way upstairs as the lights come back on again. Skinsale steps outside when he hears him going up the stairs, but he also ignores him as he continues upstairs. Down in the generator room, the Doctor and Leela return and Harker tells him that he saw Reuben. The Doctor ignores him as he tries to factor in the size of the creature based on the residual charge it left behind after taking Ben's body, but he then realises that he can just go ask Reuben, a fact Leela had been trying to make. The Doctor tells Harker to try and barricade the door whilst they go upstairs to find Reuben. They stop by the kitchen and Skinsale says that Reuben went upstairs but didn't seem right. They continue upstairs followed by Parmerdale. Skinsale, wary of Parmerdale's intentions, follows on after him and tells Adelaide he'll be back soon. The Doctor and Leela arrive at the crew quarters and find the door locked. The Doctor calls out to Reuben but he gets no response and he tells Leela that he is probably in a deep state of shock. He sends her down to tell Harker to keep the boiler pressure up so they can help keep the lighthouse operating until Reuben is better. Inside the room, Reuben begins to glow green. Up on the lamp deck, Parmerdale talks to Vince and offers him £100 to send a message to London on the telegraph for him. Vince is reluctant to get involved in anything illegal, but eventually agrees. Unbeknownst to them, they are being listened to by Skinsale, who goes back downstairs when he hears the doctor approaching. Parmerdale also steps outside to hide whilst the doctor talks to Vince. 
Vin starts to express his fears about the creature hunting them down and doubts their survival, but the doctor says that they outnumber it eight to one. At that moment, the creature is actually clinging to the underside of the walkway around the lamp deck. Palmerdale notices the green glow coming from its body and it attacks him with its tentacles, electrocuting him. Down in the kitchen, Skinsale and Adelaide argue about Palmerdale's intentions. Adelaide berates Skinsale for his perceived taking advantage of Palmerdale's generosity and goes to tell her employer everything Skinsale has said. After she goes, Skinsale starts to examine the radio telegraph. Up on the lamp deck, the doctor tells Vince to stay working the emergency siren whilst Harker works on the boiler. They suddenly hear a thudding sound from the stairway and the doctor goes to investigate. After he goes, Vince calls up to Palmerdale but gets no response. He then takes the money that Palmerdale gave him and burns it. The doctor finds Leela trying to break into the crew quarters with a sledgehammer. Adelaide comes up and demands to be let up to the lamp deck to see if Palmerdale is up there, but the doctor and Leela force her back down to the kitchen whilst they look in the room to check on Reuben. They see no sign of him and go back down to the kitchen as well. The doctor tells Leela to bring up Parker and then to go try and find Palmerdale. The doctor then comes clean to Skinsale and Adelaide and says that they are being hunted by an alien. Adelaide mocks the doctor for his statements, but he ignores her and continues telling them that life does exist outside of Earth. Leela arrives with Harker and says that she couldn't find Palmerdale, but just then Vince calls on the speaking tube and says that he thinks Palmerdale must have fallen off the walkway. Adelaide screams, but Leela slaps her to quieten her as the doctor says that he is uncertain whether or not they should go to look for his body. Skinsell says that they must, but then says the doctor is serious about the creature and agrees to do whatever he thinks is best. The doctor tells Leela to stay behind whilst he goes outside with Harker and Skinsell, unaware that Reuben is listening to them from further up the stairs. Adelaide says that her astrologer foretold disaster if they left for London, and Leela says that it is pointless to believe in magic, telling her that since travelling with the doctor, she prefers to believe in science. A short while later, the doctor and Skinsale arrive with Palmerdale's body. At the same time, Harker seals off the doorway, but before he can join them, he is confronted by a smiling Reuben. Upstairs, Adelaide accuses Skinsale of murdering him, saying that he was followed him up to the lamp deck. Skinsale reveals the conversation he overheard between Palmerdale and Vince, and the doctor asks if that was the reason why he sabotaged the telegraph, revealing the damaged workings. He tells Skinsale that by saving his own reputation, he has put the rest of them in danger. Skinsale continues to protest his innocence of the murder, and the doctor agrees, saying that Palmerdale was electrocuted to death. Vince then calls down and informs him that the emergency siren has stopped working and the boiler pressure has dropped. The doctor realises that something must have happened to Harker and they rush downstairs to find him dead. The doctor confirms to Leela that he was also electrocuted and he goes to search the coal room where he finds Reuben's body. He examines it and tells Leela that Reuben has been dead for hours. He then realises that the creature has taken Reuben's form and that he has locked it inside with them. Part 4 Up on the lamp deck, Vince is confronted by the creature still pretending to be Reuben and is electrocuted by him. Down in the generator room, the doctor tries to figure out what the creature is, saying that being able to duplicate another life form takes millennia of evolution to achieve. Leela, mistaking his lecture about Time Lord physiology by comparison, says the doctor should easily be able to defeat it. Leela suggests playing along with the deception to lull the creature into a false sense of security, but the doctor says that it can easily kill them with just a touch. He then notices something near the generator and picks up a small metal device that is humming. He says that it is some sort of power relay for an interstellar distress beacon. He tells Leela to gather the other survivors and bring them up to the lamp deck as it is the easiest place to defend. He then goes up to the crew quarters and starts searching the bunks for the signal relay for the distress beacon. He then hears footsteps approaching and he hides by hanging out of one of the windows just before Reuben comes in looking for him. Meanwhile, Leela goes up to the kitchen and tells Adelaide and Skinsale that the creature is locked in with them, causing Adelaide to faint. Skinsale helps her up and Leela says that they need to get up to the lamp deck, but they are confronted by Reuben. Adelaide tries to escape, but she is killed by Reuben. 
Linus tells Skinsel to run for it and throws her knife at Reuben, which goes right through him as he begins to glow green and turn incorporeal. They then run up the stairs and encounter the doctor, who has found the, the signal device lodged in the wall outside of the crew quarters. He tells him to go upstairs and get Vince to help them prepare to defend the lamp deck, unaware that he is already dead. He then waits on the stairs and confronts Reuben as he approaches, calling him a Rutan. With the need for the facade gone, the Rutan returns to its original gelatinous tentacle form. Up on the lamp deck, Leela and Skinsale find Vince dead. They then turn their attention to the doctor's instructions to gather all the powder from the signal flares. Back on the stairs, the doctor asks the Rutan what he is doing on Earth, and it says that it is a scout. The doctor states that the Rutans must be losing their ongoing war with the Santarans and are now looking for strongholds in the outer fringes of the galaxy. The Rutan says that the Santarans are the ones that will lose, ignoring the doctor's statements that the Santaran will destroy the planet once they notice the Rutan battle fleet approaching it. The doctor then asks why he had to kill everyone in the lighthouse, and it says that it couldn't risk being discovered. The doctor then says that he has sabotaged the signal device for the distress beacon, but the Rutan says that the signal was broadcasting long enough to be picked up by its mothership. The doctor taunts the Rutan into following him upstairs, and once there, he takes one of the bombs that Leela and Skinsel prepared and throws it at the Rutan. The bomb explodes and severely ruins the Rutan, causing it to retreat. The doctor then tells the others that the Rutans are weak to heat, but they will need something stronger than the bombs to kill it. Skinsel then shows him a Shermurli, a rudimentary signal rocket that he found downstairs, and the doctor tells him that they can load it with bits of metal to, f- to use to defend the staircase. He and Skinsel start to load it with whatever they can find in their pockets, but the doctor says the real cause for concern is the approaching Rutan battle fleet. He then says if they can destroy the approaching mothership, it might convince the Rutans and the Santarans that the Earth is too hostile to try and take over. He says that there is nothing on Earth capable of destroying the ship in orbit, but they might be able to do so when it cuts its shields as part of its landing sequence. The doctor says that they would need a carbon oscillator, which he explains as a form of intense laser beam. Leela suggests that they use the light from the lighthouse, and the doctor says that it could work, but it would need a piece of crystallized carbon to focus the beam. Skinsale asks if a diamond would do, saying that Palmerdale always carried a supply of them with him. They realise that they need to go down to the kitchen to reach the body, but they would have to get past the route on first. The three of them bring the Shermurli to the top of the stairs. The doctor tells Leela to stay behind and fire it if she sees the route on. Skinsale follows the doctor downstairs and goes into the kitchen to search Parmadale, whilst the doctor watches out for the route on. Skinsale eventually finds the bag containing the diamonds, and the doctor takes the best one and throws the rest away. Skinsale goes to retrieve them, but he is killed when the Rutan suddenly appears. The doctor rushes up the stairs and tells Leah to prepare the cannon. She fires it just as the doctor runs past, and the, the blast lethally wounds the Rutan. Then the doctor turns off the lamp, and whilst Leah goes to check on the Rutan. It defiantly states that the mothership will destroy them, but Leela basks in her triumph and ignores his threats. She then goes back up to the doctor, who points out the approaching mothership. He then rigs up the carbon oscillator and says that once he activates it, they would have less than two minutes to escape the lighthouse before it and the mothership are destroyed. They rush downstairs, but Leela stops momentarily to retrieve her knife. She and the doctor then rush outside and take cover as the mothership explodes. A curious Leela looks out from cover and witnesses the explosion, which blinds her. She sadly tells the doctor to kill her, as that is the fate of the old and the crippled of the Seventeen tribe. The doctor says that the effects will soon go away and tells her to blink. He then notices that her eyes have changed colour from brown to blue as a result of the pigmentation dispersal caused by looking at the explosion. He then leads her back to the TARDIS, reciting the Ballad of Flannan Isle by Wilfred Gibson. A confused Leela follows him inside and the ship dematerialises. End of the story. So, that'll make you think twice when you look at a lighthouse again. Uh, <laughs> uh, although, like, I was watching, kind of going, what would life be like in a modern lighthouse? 
definitely not as exciting as that anyway, I'd say. But um It just reminded me of the is it the Vodafone ad? Where you've got the young fella trying to like get reception. Yeah. And, like he lives in a lighthouse and he keeps running further and further. And it's only when he gets to the top he gets reception. Yeah. And it's his girlfriend or female friend yeah. the the base lighthouse being like, yeah. Do you wanna come out for lunch or something? And she's like, Oh fuck's sake, it's run all the way up to the top. <laughs> oh. That and it reminds me of that Australian TV show from like the nineties. Round the twist. Oh, what was it? Yes. Yeah. That's... Strange things happen when you're going around the twist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a weird, weird, weird show. It was a great show at the same time. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to tell you more about this weird, great show. Yes, do please. Cool. So, the air date for the horror Fang Rock is the third of September to the twenty fourth of September in nineteen seventy seven. The writer is Terence Dix. This is story four of six i wrote since <laughs> that makes no sense this is story four of six returns we previously saw his work in the war games robot and the brain of morbius ish hmm. you know that was a robert holmes um contribution as well um horrifying rock was actually a late replacement um terence had originally submitted a script based on vampires it's called the vampire mutations but that was cancelled because uh, people were afraid that it would detract from the BBC's adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> which was due to be transmitted around the same time. So they were like, yeah, no, let's bin that. And that a rewritten version of that was later used um, by Doctor Who in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was a rewrite, uh, sort of a replacement script for that. Obviously, he's Terence, so he also wrote the novelization for the story, which is like a given for him. I, I also like, you know, it probably is in your trivia, but I also seem to recall something like that, like Philip Hinchcliffe, like mandated a story set in a lighthouse at some point in the season. Probably, but Philip is gone by this point. Mm. Do you know, like he finished up last season. Um, so it's possible that like that was like on like sort of Philip's sort of ideal list and maybe something that Bob. You know, yeah, over it's actually one thing that I kind of found interesting in that book that you gave me, which is like the number of like scripts that are like under older producers that get based because they're there essentially on file, and if they're stuck for mm. stories, like they kind of go right here, use this one. Yeah, although apparently, um, there was like some idea that like this story was originally written for Sarah Jane, mm-hmm. um, and Terence said no, that this was a fresh, a fresh script specifically for for this. And um, like I said, he also wrote the novelization of the story. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that um, in a minute. Um, And we'll see his work again in State of Decay and The Five Doctors. The director of the story is Paddy Russell. This is the final of four directing credits for Paddy, who previously saw her work in The Massacre, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and Pyramids of Mars. So a couple of big hitters there. Mm. Paddy didn't particularly enjoy her experience working on this story. A couple of reasons to that. She much preferred Terence's original script. And she didn't really think much of this sort of hastily written replacement. But she had to do the story. She was under contract. She had to do it. Um, But also filming wasn't exactly the happiest experience for her, in large part due to Tom Baker. Um, And him clashing with Louise was particularly challenging for her. Um, And Paddy also claimed that Tom so infuriated the crew that at one point they tried to swing a pair of mole cranes at his head 
Jesus Christ. Until she saw what they were doing, ordered them to stop. And there's a big long quote here that I got off of the TARDIS wiki um, from Patty. So it's, Tom Baker was easy to deal with at first, but the part went to his head completely. By the time, obviously because she did pyramids with himself. By the time I did Horror Fang Rock, he was desperately difficult to work with. His input got totally out of hand. His attitude to his fellow actors was extremely difficult. His attitude to his director was extremely difficult. His attitude to the crew was extremely difficult. For instance, it was always everybody else's fault and never Tom's. His idea was to have the show to himself. He didn't want an assistant and he made their lives hell. Louise Jameson went through hell on that show and that lady is a very good actress. Fortunately, she's very tough and she got a lot of support from everyone else. I found her excellent to work with, but Tom hardly spoke to her. And when he did, it was usually something nasty. That's probably the longest quote we've seen. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, we've, we've heard mention of, oh, they didn't get along. Tom was very difficult to work with. I think that's the, the longest sort of put down of Tom at this time on the show mm. that we've seen from a director who worked with him before. Do you know, so she has something to compare him against, like Tom and Pyramids of Mars, which is only two seasons ago, well, two and a bit, mm-hmm. um, versus this. And um, she can really see the evolution over time. She also didn't like the fact that they were filming at BBC's Birmingham Studios because there was a scheduling conflict at Television Centre where they do all of their filming. And she said the facilities weren't up to scratch. Like, it was a really poor shoot. And so she decided not to direct the show ever again. Which is a shame because she's a really good director. She really is. Um, Like I said, I wasn't a big fan of the massacre Mm. story-wise. I didn't think it was a great Doctor Who story. But on its own, she did some amazing stuff with that. Yeah, like... And, like, obviously, she directed um, Bill in that amazing... mm -hmm monologue yeah absolutely um invasion i mean what she did with that story was brilliant mm-hmm. pyramids obviously a fantastic story so i'm actually kind of sad that we're not going to see her directing work again yeah because she's had some really strong stories more on this story though so this story had the working titles of the rocks of doom or just rocks of doom the monster of fang rock and the beast of fang rock um you kind of refer to it there in your summary but it was inspired by Wilfred Gibson's 1912 poem Flannan Isle which was in turn based upon true events that had heard in 1900 when a supply ship discovered that the crew of a lighthouse on Flannan Isles in the Outer Hebrides had vanished without a trace. Terence also drew on Ray Bradbury's 1951 short story The Foghorn about an aquatic dinosaur which has survived the ocean's depths was attracted by a call of a lighthouse's foghorn. Mm. In the DVD commentary, Terence said that he wasn't happy with Tom Baker's delivery of the line, dead with honour, when he's telling Leela about Skidsdale's fate. And in the episode, and this sort of makes more sense when you read it, but in the episode, Tom says, dead with honour. All one thing, no pause, no punctuation. Mm. In the novelization. Terence writes it as dead, full stop, with honour, to emphasise that he was dead and that the with honour was kind of a afterthought mm. because Skinsel didn't really, did he really die no, with honour? We may get didn't. to that like in our conversation. Mm. Um, but that was the doctor trying to give him some honour in death 
but that I took a second to do that. Um, which, given what Paddy was saying around, you know, Tom's inputs and stuff, like that's a that's a key reaction, mm. you know, and and the placement of a full stop, mm-hmm. the placement of a pause is so so different from what the writer intends versus what the actor mm. or like, delivers. Absolutely, like actually, um, just a complete, complete fucking segue here, but. Um, I recently watched the thing there where it was like uh, Patrick Stewart was just having a doing an interview years ago and he was talking about you know like how he's one of the um, the later day Shakespearean actors along with Ian McKellen and Derek Jacoby and he said like oh, the most important thing I ever learned from Ian McKellen is if you're ever doing uh, Macbeth it's like when you're doing that big soliloquy it's like put the emphasis on and you know it's like you know and tomorrow and tomorrow because and I was like you see a, a lot of stuff where like actors will they'll read a script and they'll put the emphasis on one word or one sentence, mm. which completely changes the context of what's being said. Yeah, I think it's. I think that's kind of a cool actor's insight into stuff. Mm. It's interesting when you have the writer sort of saying it. that wasn't. Yeah, that wasn't what I intended with mm-hmm. that. Um, the pigment dispersal scene <laughs> at the end of the story. We discussed this the other week. Um, basically, Louise Jameson didn't want to wear those contact lenses anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully for Louise, they did film Invisible Enemy before this, which is next week's story. So she actually did have a break from wearing them before she put them back in mm. for this story. And now she's not going to have to wear them ever again, um, which is good. Uh, the scene where Leela slaps Adelaide to stop her from screaming. Um, apparently Louise did slap that actress quite hard. <laughs> Um, at the actress's insistence. So um, Annette Woolett, who played Adelaide, basically told her not to hold anything back uh, when doing the slap. And apparently Louise went for it. <laughs> Which, I don't know, I think, I mean, you always hear about that with people like sort of like trying to play it tough, being mm. like, oh, don't pull your punch or whatever. I'm like, that's never a good idea. You're going to end up on the floor. Yeah. And like, particularly in an acting situation, you're losing control of the scene, I think. Sure. Uh, um, there, there's the great story of uh, like Viggo Mortensen, um, you know, like in doing fucking Lord of the Rings when uh, the, like he like the, himself and the stunt crew had this agreement where it's like you know like yeah no we can kind of like just throw each other digs every so and again, but one of the lead Uruks was so pissed off and like just annoyed from his makeup procedure that he actually mm-hmm. when he headbutts Viggo Mortensen he actually knocks one of his teeth out. Well, it's actually he chipped part of his front tooth. Was, off. was it the front tooth off? I thought yeah, it was like the like, entire tooth comes uh-huh. out. Yeah. No, he chips off part because they're in in the. In, I was actually watching this other actually, um, in the behind the scenes interview, he sat there with like the sort of like, I'd say lower third of his tooth, yeah, missing, and apparently like he picked it up and he's like, oh, someone get some super glue and we'll just glue yeah. it back in and keep going, and they were like, no, figure we're going to take it to a dentist, <laughs> um, but actually, it, funnily enough, when talking completely sidetracking, only because I'm watching Rings Apart at the moment, but. Um, when talking about that, when talking about the scene where like he smacks away the, the helmet, the dagger. Oh, oh yeah, sorry, the dagger. You know that was actually coming for his face. Yeah. Um, and when he broke his toe, he actually Viggo Mortensen actually didn't like talking about. It. And in the interviews, he's like, "Yeah, yeah, that happened." But you know, like for the stunt guys, this thing happens them every day. You're only talking about it because I'm an actor and not a stuntman. Which it was actually a very, it's actually kind of sweet that he's like, please don't make a big deal of the fact that like I got hurt. Mm. These guys put their bodies on the line every day to do this job. 
you're not talking about other things that happened to them you know so don't bother talking about what happened to me which i think is actually very sweet i, I love i love actors who care about their particularly stunt people um that way, I think right. himself and uh, keanu reeves are very big into like you know giving compliments and props and to the stunt to the stunt teams that they work with in the movies that they do yeah okay that was a yeah, bit of a sidetrack yeah. into lord of the rings and rings of Power. fuck it we always um, sidetrack into shit <laughs> Um, so while in the show they never explicitly state what year the story is set in, it's pretty easy to sort of um, infer what it is because when they're talking about the beast being seen eighty years ago, mm-hmm. Vince is like, "Oh, back in the twenties. So obviously they're only talking about the introduction of electricity. Mm-hmm. So they're hardly mean the nineteen twenties. Therefore, that was in the eighteen twenties. So this is around turn of the century, mm-hmm. you know, early nineteen hundreds." Um, we talked a while ago about Tom and Louise, and we've talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly, you and I have talked about the fact that like all this drama doesn't show on screen, which is great, mm-hmm. um, and kind of a weird credit to them both. Um, but according to the, on the DVD, Louise does say that there was a scene in part three that was crucial to her and Tom having a smoother working relationship. And it's when uh, the doctor carries in Palmerdale's body. And apparently Tom consistently came in ahead of his cue, mm-hmm. thereby upstaging Louise. Yeah. So Louise was on her cue and her part of the scene. And Tom kept coming in early. And so she kept insisting that they retake it again and again because this was not what they had rehearsed. Mm-hmm do it again, do it again. And finally, after three successive retakes, after doing it four times, he finally came in at the proper rehearsed time. And apparently that won his respect. Mm. And from that point on, she said that their working relationship was a lot smoother. And prior to me, he's like, that's nice. He's a nice, smooth working relationship. After that, hopefully, um, we'll see what next week's story brings, if that's actually true. I was like, really? That was the turning point? Yeah. Him repeatedly being a dick and you not putting up with that anymore was the turning point. That yeah, like it's, it's not exactly the happiest story, Louise. It, it's not. No, <laughs> it's happy for her life, but in terms of the general fucking flow of the show, you know, it's like, uh, dude, come on. Yeah. Um. One of the things that I certainly have it in my notes, but I'm going to call it out here as well because I don't know if you have it in your notes and. You'll be commenting before me today, so I, I do want to include it here in case you have it. Um, is it's never expressly explained in the show why Vince burns the money? Um, I w- was reading that, kind of going, ah, he's a man. Of- no, wait, no, no, he he doesn't want to be implicated. <laughs> Basically, yeah, he was concerned that he might be accused of murdering Palmerdale. Mm. Should he be found to have the money? Yeah, so. You know, he was afraid they thought that he that he tried to rob him or something like that for the money. Not necessarily that he would be involved in, you know, whatever Palmer Day was doing in terms of trying to radio London and whatever. That that wasn't. It was like more so like he was concerned about, you know, being found, being accused of murdering yeah. him in order to get money. I th- I think we'll find out his name now in a minute. But I think the guy who played Vince actually does a good enough job of presenting the character to us i i thought that that was kind of a fairly obvious reason why he was burning it 
Yeah, I I did too, though I found it interesting there was no mention of it. Yeah. Do you know? Mm. Um, the money never gets mentioned ever again. Do you know? Like, or you don't have, um, you don't have uh, Skinzel being like, oh, but I saw him giving you money. Yeah. There's, there's nothing of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the novelization, Terence clarifies mm-hmm. that that's why. Um, again, we see Leela in something other than her famous leather outfit. Um, however, it's decided to return her to her original costume after this. So we will be seeing Leather Leela again <laughs> next week. Um, and this marks the last time, potentially, put an asterisk and stuff like that, that the Doctor travels with only a single companion until the Caves of Androzani in 1984. Uh, however, asterisk, um, some people don't see the introduction of Nissa in the Keeper of the Traken as a carryover. They think that, that she didn't actually start being companion until the following episode. Mm. In which case, until the Keeper of the Traken. Um, I was trying to figure it out because like, the K9 gets introduced next week. Spoilers. K9 gets introduced yeah. next week. Uh, I was like, does K9 stay, really? Until the very end? I was like, well, yeah, he does send versions of K9 off with people. Yeah, because like, there's... No, we're not going to spoil stuff, but there's at least... The most current thing was K9 Mark IV, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So there's variations of K9. Yeah. So the K9 that we see in the Sarah Jane Adventures, for example, mm-hmm. is K9 Mark IV. So um, this was the final televised story in which every character other than the Doctor and his companion is killed up until the Doctor's wife in 2011. Um, in early drafts, actually, Adelaide and Skinsale were meant to survive. However, they wanted to make it resonate with the poem. Mm-hmm. So they changed it to make it that no one survived. The idea being that, you know, the following day, you know, a ship rocks up yeah. and sees that the entire place is, um, everyone's dead. There's a really interesting story on the TARDIS wiki. You can probably find it elsewhere as well. I'm not going to go into all the detail, but I do strongly yeah. encourage you to go to Tyre's Wiki and look it up. Around a rebroadcast of this story on PBS in Chicago in 1987. Where the station was a target of a bizarre prank in which certain individuals, who to this day they don't know who they were, managed to hijack the broadcast feed. For nearly 90 seconds, they aired footage of two individuals wearing a Max Headroom mask, uh, spouting gibberish, and advertising catchphrases, including ones that were associated with Max Headroom and Coca-Cola, humming music, engaging in mildly risque behaviour, you know, sort of calling people nerds and and stuff like this. And they never found out who did it. Um, They actually, it happened on two broadcasts. This, and then... There was another broadcast, I think, of a football game or something, mm. where they did the same thing. And like they describe in detail on the TARDIS wiki like what was in this video. And it's so fucking random. Like I'm not going to go into all of it. I encourage you to look it up. But like, that's so fucking weird. See, I had heard about this. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I thought that it was actually fucking someone just threw on 90 seconds of the Max Headroom TV show. No, 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 yeah. no. This was like... 
this is a prank. It was like if you read down through it, like on the Tires Wiki, and I do, I do recommend that you do. Um, if you read down through it in the Tires Wiki, it sort of describes sort of scene by scene, I suppose, what it is. And no one ever fucking figured it out. It's like literally there's 90 seconds of the show that these guys hacked it, and no one ever figured out, like, did they particularly target Doctor Who? Because like, there was some mention of nerds and stuff in their rhetoric, or was it just that they did it for a laugh and this just happened to be the transmission that they that they um managed to hijack but yeah i, d- I never heard about this and i was like that's so fucking weird <laughs> <laughs> um but let's go on to our cast mm-hmm. right so as reuben and the voice of the rootin we have colin douglas this is the second and final appearance for colin we previously saw him as Donald Bruce in The Enemy of the World. So that was a couple of years ago in Showtime. And I, I remember at the time saying that it was un, unusual that he was coming back again for this because he didn't really speak highly of Doctor Who when he was no. when he was cast the first time around. Yeah, so it's interesting that maybe, you know, obviously having watched Doctor Who maybe mm. more in the intervening years. It's been many years since he was on it. So yeah, um, it is interesting. Uh, Vince is played by John Abbott um, only Doctor Who acting credit for John his non-Who credits include Zedkars, Angels, Caput Who and Trial and Retribution John recalled that Paddy Russell apparently cast him as Vince after seeing him play Snoopy in a play in the Edinburgh Fringe <laughs> which I just think is lovely because now I can't think of Vince without thinking of Snoopy I'm like okay that's adorable uh, Paul Mordale is played by Sean Caffrey, only Doctor Who acting credit for Sean. His non-Who credits include The Viking Queen, No Hiding Place, Coronation Street, Zed Cars Again, The Human Factor, and The Bill. Sean passed away in 2013. Skinsale is played by Alan Rowe. This is appearance three of four on Doctor Who for Alan. We previously saw him in The Moon Base and again in The Time Warrior, where he was Edward of Wessex. I don't think we talked about him at the time, nope. so I will continue. Um, we'll see him again in full circle. And then his non-Who credits include Hail Caesar, The Diary of Samuel Pepys, An Age of Kings, Forever Green, The Manageress, and Crown Court. Alan passed away in 2000. Harker is played by Rio Fanning, only Doctor Who acting credit for Rio. His non-Who credits include Relic Hunter, The Avengers, EastEnders, All Creatures Great and Small, the Needle Line and Zed Cars again. A lot of Zed Cars this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhea passed away in 2018. As Adelaide, we have Annette Willett. This is our only Doctor Who acting credit. And actually, she only has four acting credits to her name ever. Uh, so the Or five, rather, including this one. So her others are Scott On, Upstairs, Downstairs, Thriller, and Emmerdale. Now, I'm going to talk about the guy who played Ben as well, because this is a very mm. small cast of characters. And even though we won't be discussing Ben as a character, it feels mean to leave his actor yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben is played by Ralph Watson. This is the final of four stories for Ralph, who previously saw slash heard him in The Underwater Menace. He was in The Web of Fear. He was Captain Knight, The Web of Fear. Ah. And he was in The Monster of Peladon, where he played Etis. Ralph passed away last year in June of 2021. Like he's like he's got a very George Harrison late era Beatles vibe about him in like in this one. Uh, so it's like Etis, was that the um, that was the miner that basically went fucking insane and tried to yeah, yeah blow up the citadel. Yeah. Um Yeah. I feel kind of fucking cheated because 
he's a really good actor when it comes to when it comes to Doctor Who. Like Knight was mm. a, was a, was done well. Um, mm. Etis thought we thought was done well as well. Um, so like I, I suppose it's a shame that he's final one. He's like reduced to like you know Act One dead body. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was like when I was going through the list of characters, I was like, cool, you know, sort of like opening new tabs for each of the actors. Like, cool, cool. And I was like, oh, fuck, there's only one left. I can't really leave them off. For fuck's sake. Uh, I actually watched. Um, I re- I remember my very first memory of horror Fang Rock was part four, and it's the sequence mm-hmm. where um, the Rutan is chasing Skinsale and the Doctor. Hmm. And I, I was like, I was up above at my cousin's place. Just, I think I had, I had actually watched a Matt Smith episode, uh, and then hmm. I just turned on UK TV Gold and it was like, oh look, it's actually it's classic Doctor Who. So, <laughs> and I watched the end of that episode and I kind of fell asleep. Then I think you have such oddly specific memories. Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I honestly don't know how your brain works. Oh, <laughs> like, you you messaged me th- last night. Mm-hmm. Being like, oh, I just saw like the best scene ever with Leela, and I literally just fucking watched it. I was like, what the fuck is that about? <laughs> like, my brain is blanked yeah. on everything I just watched. <laughs> oh no! This is why you have to do my remembering for me. Yes. So we have done the story summary. Thank you, Paddington. Thank we have you. done the trivia. Thank, Thank you. you, Trish. <laughs> and now it's on to our characters. So we have the Doctor, played by the illustrious Tom Baker himself. Mm-hmm. For companions, I'll be honest, I just put Leela yeah. and I put everyone else as a prominent character. Yeah, no, the same. Well, obviously, yeah. yeah the, with, well, with the, the Yeah, the <laughs> yeah. Um, So we have the companion of Leela. Mm-hmm. And then we have the prominent characters of Reuben, Vince, Palmerdale, Skinsale, Harker, and Adelaide. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about Ben. Nice guy. Died in like five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, as the villain, we have the Rutan itself. Mm-hmm. So, Paddy, as is now tradition. Yes. Took us only like... Two and a bit years to start show, it, yeah. To come, to a, come to a tradition. <laughs> but I will hand to you first thoughts on the Doctor in Horror of Fine Rock, mm. please. There is something that I think Tom's Doctor does better than any of the Doctors that we've seen so far, right? Mm. Is that he treats the rank-and-file characters with a degree of respect that their superiors don't. Mm. And he's very good about treating them as... Even when he's giving them orders, he's kind of treating them... or He makes it feel like he's treating them as equals. Like, I think that's definitely shown here in his relationship with Vince and Harker. Yeah. Like Harker more so than I th- would think Vince. Um, because like Vince is still like the younger, uh, he's the young junior mm. keeper. Uh, whereas like Harker is a seasoned sailor. But like he shows such great reverence and like trust in Harker. Uh, yeah. I, I think I think it's great. Like, like, Tom does it very, very well. Mm. Um and like I, I can't remember any of the other guys doing it as well as he would do it. No, I think like John had good relationships with specific members of the rank and file. Mm. He got on well with Yates, he got on well with Benton. Mm. But like if we think about what's his face in the demons, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like 
Oh, Oz. Yeah, Oscar. he wasn't trained then, bro. Yeah, but yeah, Oscar. Like, and I know like Benton and Yates aren't technically yeah. rank and file. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? But but, but yeah. the rank and file of the week, I suppose, would be the like yeah. the, the kind of the incidental characters that just crop up for the story. Um, yeah. But this is I I really enjoyed him in this story. Like, there's some really good science investigation going on because uh, you can see him there trying to figure out what it is. He's constantly trying to figure out what it is that he's fighting, and mm. like he's like like he's like factoring in the size of the creature to leave a residual charge so like mm. and then he's kind of figure out is, the, is that it or whatever uh but of course you know we because he's so caught up in his own investigations we do get some beautiful like comedic moments where it's like leela's trying to like explain stuff to him and he's just off in his own little world um but i also like as well like when he brings the wider universe to the story mm. so like here yep. Like we've talked before about the Santarans, and we know that they're engaged in a war with the Rutans. But here, he actually kind of makes it feel like it's from an outsider's perspective. It's two fucking races that are tearing up sections of the galaxy in this. And we, we like again, we never find out why the war started. Why is it going on as long as it is? Um, but it's just like that these two you know, packs of fucking pricks are just like constantly going at it. Um, and I like I, I like that I really like that in this story. Um, my favorite uh, Leela moment actually comes more so from the Doctor than it does uh, Leela herself. But it's when he's on about the carbon oscillator, and he said like it's a laser. Like Skin said, it's like what's that? And Leela's like, oh, oh, it's like a really intense light. And he's like, yeah, but we don't have anything here. And then she suggests using the the lamp from the lighthouse and he's like mm. you're suggesting that we use this and he just goes Leela that's a beautiful notion I just a big smile on her face when he says it I love it yeah it's it's an incredibly it's an incredibly nice moment you know mm. um yeah I think for me like, that sort of highlights again this sort of juxtaposition between what we're hearing in the background mm-hmm. between these two actors Versus what we're seeing on screen with their characters. Yeah. It's just such this sort of mirror image, almost. Yeah, it's like this weird Jekyll and Hyde-like relationship that they have. Yeah, and like, I can only imagine sort of being in that environment and sort of it feeling really schizophrenic. Mm. But it goes goes to the level of, I suppose, like on-camera professionalism between the two of them and also shows that Mm. their acting skills, you know? Um. Mm. But yeah, no, I thought it was like as it was a good showing for the doctor at a lot of stuff that like I I really like about him in it, you know. Yeah, I really like the doctor in this one. Um, particularly, you, know, you mentioned you know the lovely moment he had with Leela mm. there, and to be honest, there's actually a few lovely moments. There is. That's why I wasn't quite sure which one you meant when you messaged me. But for me, it's just this overall trust he shows in her, mm. even when he's correcting her on something, like when she was beating down the door to Ruben's yeah. room. He stops her, but he doesn't. There's no excessive criticism or malice. Mm. It's purely, no, hold on, wait. It's getting to the point where now it's just education. Mm. It's not like, you know, I said no more Janus Thorns or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's not that, mm. um, which I think is really good. Um, I think he works really well with the other characters as well. Mm. Like you said, you mentioned him and Vince and him and Harker. Mm. I think, particularly with Harker, like he knows nothing about Harker. Except the first thing he hears about is that while the rich people, you know, immediately left for the White House, that Harker was staying behind to see if anyone else survived, Mm -hmm. to take care of the ship. Like, you know, he clearly 
He took note of Harker straight away mm-hmm. and immediately trusted him. Mm-hmm. Immediately, you know, Harker, I need to do this. And there's no um, hesitation or anything with it. Do you know? And that goes both ways because mm-hmm. Harker is the same way with the doctor. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, like I said, with Vince, it's a little bit different because Vince is like the junior keeper of the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. But the doctor still listens to him, do you know, and still has a good connection with him. Mm-hmm. It's just maybe not as good as Harker. Um, and like I said, the Leela relationship is just really, really solid here. There's actually another moment that I like, not as I said, not as much as the uh, the beautiful notion one, but it's where mm-hmm. Leela says it's gotten cold again. And Skin says, like, I don't really feel anything. And like the doctor like is like, her senses are something that you basically you just go like she knows what she's talking about yeah and I, I was going to talk about that when we talked about Leela but I love how in that scene the doctor doesn't discount it mm-hmm. anymore because remember like back in Robots of Death he's like what the fuck are you talking about yeah um, whereas here he's like no she just has very advanced senses mm-hmm. so shut the fuck up yeah <laughs> um, which is great the only negative I have here and it's a small one is the tone at the end mm. And not even at the very end, but like when he makes it back up the stairs, like he, he says, like, you know, that skin cell, you know, dead with honor. Literally two seconds later, the two of them are laughing. And I'm like, mm. that was a bit fucking much. Like you are in a lighthouse full of dead people. And whereas like maybe it's because this doctor is younger and whatever. But like if you imagine in modern Doctor Who, mm. The reaction the doctor has when everyone but him and the companions in the story dies, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe it's a sign this doctor is still very young, do you know, and still sees it as an adventure rather than take it on board uh, because, personally. Because like, like there's there's gallows humor, and then there's just outright being a bit of a fucking insensitive prick. Um, yeah, because like we've talked about times where he's used gallows humor, and it it's very fitting. Whereas here it's like, no, you know, like whatever you want to say about, you know, the waste of oxygen that are the Tucson ball ground <laughs> crew in this particular story. Um, like, like guys like Vince, uh, Parker, even Ruben, like mm. it's, this wasn't what they were fucking expecting on this evening, yeah. you know? And was it even skin sale at the end? Like I, I get like, and we'll talk about it in a second, mm. but like, he did, he was like, you know, you need diamonds. Yeah. I can get you diamonds. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, and he did face it yeah. head on. Do you know? Um, yeah. Oh, that was just the one, if I was searching for a criticism, that was the one criticism I have. Because again, you know, maybe in other stories we'd see him laugh and then get serious. Mm-hmm. But here, we don't get the serious follow-up. It's like, they laugh and then they're making the ray. And then at the end of the story, he's citing the poem, mm-hmm. but like, where is the, you know, it's a lament for the dead mm-hmm. type thing. Like, that's a bit sussy. Yes. Okay. It's, it's sussy. <laughs> um, anything else on the doctor? Uh, no. Well, I suppose one last little bit, the fleeing the lighthouse sequence where like, you know, mm-hmm. Leela like stops to get her knife and he's continually calling her down and then he runs back in, but she runs past and his momentum carries him into the generator. So he has to <laughs> rebound off that and go out after her again. That felt kind of reminiscent of some of the stuff that he might've done with Liz, uh, mm. with, uh, with Sarah Jane. Um, so it's, it's nice that he's still doing that with someone that at the time 
he's not particularly yeah yeah on par with yeah and again given their background relationship we have to wonder like how much of this is in the script how Mm. much of it is in the directing how much of it is just you know acting and them sort of being like you know forget what's between you and me what would our characters do it does make you wonder how much of it is in each i i think that that sequence like it probably was a case of where the doctor would have stood in the doorway and called her on but i think Mm. the you know yo-yoing back and forth i think that's like a an on the spot ad lib by the two of them Mm. speaking of the two of them Mm -hmm. we have his other half in this story Mm -hmm. leela Mm -hmm. so thoughts on leela paddington so um we've talked before about turn sticks and his writing of certain female characters and Mm -hmm. while he may not be great with you know modern feminists he is very good at writing badass warrior women um i would agree i was surprised yeah i was concerned about how terence was going to write this Mm. and i was pleasantly surprised no slight exception to one or two bits of dialogue from leela uh like the do as the doctor says or i'll cut out your heart and which like prompts a smile from the doctor it's a bit bit much uh but i get where it's coming from (laughs) but leela is given again so much agency in this one it's great like she's not in such a small confined setting where it is Mm. where it is kind of hard for other characters to expand the story by themselves because literally they're in a fucking 30 foot tall cylinder Mm. Um, Leela does an awful lot of actually lead, you know, progressing the story here and taking charge at points, is, which is great. Um, like it's it's just fucking like Chris Boucher or Boucher or Booker, whatever we call him, mm. Bob Holmes and Terrence Sticks, they've all done this character justice. Like, Le- yeah. like they've written it in such a way that Louise is able to give this masterful performance for someone that is quite possibly one of the strongest consistent characters that we've seen in a long time. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and it's like here as well, like we get to, we kind of get the meeting of, I won't say like, it's like a kind of a tipping point for Leela, but like it's definitely somewhere where we're seeing the, a combination of the savage and the novice scientist that she's becoming hmm. because, um, like it's obviously like there's the savage thing of you know the threats that she makes or like or even her, her her hunting abilities or even some of the things that she kind of states. Whereas with the novice scientist, we're talking about like her recommending using the 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 lamp to amplify the laser mm-hmm. beam because she's paid attention to what the doctor has said, and she's now probably putting it into ways that she, as a seventeen warrior, could utilize. <laughs> she's still taking that information on board and putting it into a context that she can understand, which is great. Um. But I like her interaction with Vince because it's very sweet. Um, mm. You know, like her, like kind of stripping down. He's like, "Oh, like you know, I, I really shouldn't be looking at this. I really shouldn't be looking at this." But and uh, she doesn't really see the harm in it. Um, also, like she's not afraid to like throw someone a slap if it it's needed to like bring down the tension. And I know that Lila didn't hear the stuff that was being said about her by this one, but you know, it's like she kind of deserved that one from Leela. <laughs> um, no, I think, yeah, no, we're consistently solid here with Leela again. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, this is another great outing for her. And, like, you know, I had issues with 
last week's story and whatever. But for Leela, this is four for four. So I think I think her top stories is going to be really really difficult. Mm. Um, if these first four are anything to go by, like even even um, even if it's downhill from here on in, which I can't remember fully, yeah. it'll be very hard to figure out which is the one that gets knocked. Yeah, like even if you just had to like even if we had to do a um, you know a Liz Shaw on it, mm-hmm. and we only had these four, I've no clue how I'd rank them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's amazing. I do love how because we mentioned it in her first story, and it's come up in every story since and i love it the fact that this thing that they are originally going to do with her where she has this sort of precognition or whatever but they change this danger sense mm. i like how they've kept it mm-hmm. because it's a very easy thing particularly in a show like doctor who that could get dropped off do you know they mentioned it in the first story they mentioned it in the second story which is the same person were both so okay he kept over his his mm. thing but we're in a new season now. Mm. It would have been perfectly fine and perfectly understandable for them just to not mention that ever again. Mm. Do you know? And just have it be, you know, bog standard female companion or whatever. But I like the, how they keep bringing it in. And like I said, I love how the doctor isn't discounting it anymore. And he actually reiterates the importance of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of get that sense of... um. It sort of reminds me a little bit of Planet of Evil when Sarah Jane was the one who was only ever seemed to be able to sense mm-hmm. the antimatter monster. And eventually the doctor started taking note of it and sort of realizing, okay, this is something to pay attention to. Um, which again, with Tom's doctor, could very easily be something he just ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really glad that they're keeping that about her because it gives her something... Like she's not just the savage, hmm. and I I took issue with them repeatedly referring to her as that. I think it was last week I mentioned it. Hmm. I don't like the fact that they keep referring to her as that. But I like here, you know, they play it for a joke. Hmm. You know, she says, "I'm savage," and <laughs> <laughs> then the dog's like, "Come along, savage." Yeah. Do you know what I mean that it's it's now a joke between the two hmm. of them? It's not derogatory towards her in any way. No. Um, which I like. Hmm. Um. Now, one thing I will say is, Leela, did the doctor not tell you it's bad form to strip down in front of innocent young men without warning? <laughs> Though, in fairness... Okay. Her seaside outfit was very sweet. Mm-hmm. She looked way better in bed and clothes. Yes, yes. Like, I think... Actually, possibly even including the leather. I think that was my favourite Leela outfit. Because it's like... In terms of... To look at her. <laughs> yeah, like we, we we talk about this like you know, from time to time, or like ourselves, like, as we do in our general conversations. I think it's it's classy, sexy. Yeah, yeah. I like I like it. It suits Lila yeah. very well. It suits Louise very well. I think. Mm. Um, what I love about Lu- about Louise, what I love about Lila here in this story, though, is how throughout the entire story she just gets stuck in. Mm. She's willing and able to fight. She's willing and able to investigate, or just to shovel coal. No one asks her to shovel coal, but she noticed that they were shoveling coal and that was an important function of this lighthouse. So while the doctor's waffling on, she's shoveling coal mm-hmm. because there's no one else to do it. And I love that she's like, yeah, cool, I'll do this now. Mm-hmm. This needs doing. I'm here. I'm strong. I'll do it. 
um, which is great. And whatever is needed and without prompting, which is the best part. So she goes off, she has her own investigation, she comes back. You know, she sees... Um, the Rutan. Uh, no, she sees fucking, I forgot her name, Harker mm-hmm. using the, the big mallet. And she's like, I can use that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take this. I'll be back later. And she just goes off. She doesn't ask anyone's permission. She's just fucking wailing on that door. Mm-hmm. And so being like, Ruben, I can fucking see you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, there's, and I love the fact that like, it's actually, ironically for the character that like, you know, we sort of commented like, was she just brought in as the something to look at character? Mm. Like you said, she's had the most consistent characterization. Mm. And, I think subtle natural development. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was like Sarah Jane developed as well, but Sarah Jane's development was kind of backwards in some senses. Mm. Going from being really depend independent to really childlike. Here we have someone going from being really superstitious and whatever. It's like you said, believing in science while not losing herself. No. Like she could very easily have become. Um, you know, like Victoria just following along after the doctor. Mm-hmm. Do you know? But she says, no, okay. He's doing that thing. I'm going to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if I'm like searching for a negative for Leela here, her reaction to being blinded was a bit much. <laughs> that realization and her reaction to it needed some room to breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was literally... I'm holding my face. I can't see. Kill me. All in the same fucking motion. Um, and if you compare it to... I don't mean to continue to compare against Sarah. We, we often compare companions. You compare against Sarah in Morbius, where she runs after the doctor, mm-hmm. like holding the doctor's hand for ages. It's only when she sits down later, she comes about being blind. Mm. And she let, you know, the doctor looks at her eyes. And there's the scene is given room to breathe. Mm-hmm. Now, it becomes a further plot point in that story, and mm-hmm. they only have, like, 30 seconds left in this one. Um, but I would have liked it just to have a little bit of extra room to breathe before she said, kill me. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know? Rather than, I can't see, kill me, I'm broken. I would have rather just a little bit of extra time on that <laughs> to breathe. Jesus Christ, it's vicious in the seven team tribe. Is he, he's everything... He's got a really bad leg, but he's our most experienced hunter. He could teach all the generations to come. It's like, nah, fucking nah, get fuck rid, get rid of him. <laughs> no, it's like you know. Oh my god, I can't walk. Kill him. No, but like, as in, I just, I just slept funny. I just slept funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, and only because I think that um, you know, Leela the character, but also I think Louise the actress could have done a lot with like an extra 30 seconds on that scene. Hmm. Joe, I think she could have done a lot with it and it wouldn't have been as funny <laughs> as it turned out being. But as you say, like, there's a really good plot element there, which is that like, with her heightened senses, like having hmm. her be blind and having that play into things, that would have been kind of cool. Yeah, like, I would have liked to have seen like she gets blinded, he guides her back to the TARDIS and then she says it. And then he's like, you know, give it time to clear. I mean, surely someone in her tribe looked too close to a fire or something at one point. Mm. Like, you know I mean? um, but yeah, again, but that's, that's mm. me rooting around for yeah a negative point. You know? Interesting. 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 So on to 
our prominent characters, mm -hmm. of which we have a plethora. Mm -hmm. Should we just start with the order that you sent them to me, which is Reuben, Vince, Palmerdale, Gonzale, Harker, and Adelaide? Or like, do, do we want to like? See, normally we're to group like, them together. Yeah, like, see, normally, <laughs> normally what we do is like with prominent characters, like, is we go like by order, of, like ascendancy, of, like how good of a prominent or how interesting of a prominent character that they actually are. But hmm. maybe we could just kind of push it into lighthouse keepers and survivors. Yeah, we could do. Yeah. So why don't, we, why don't we start with the old man? Yeah. Right. So start off with Ruben. Ooh. What are your thoughts on Ruben? There's no. I've been trying to find a way to say this or to describe it. There's something about the way, the combination of the writing of Ruben's character, and Colin's performance. It just makes him an interesting watch. Like mm. he, he's not he's not like a particularly fucking nice character. Like uh you know, um He's a bit fucking racist. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like he's the well, like yeah, he's kinda of, he's racist outsiders, he's very suspicious, he's very superstitious, he likes taking mm. the mick out of like but that's I think it's typical of the old hand taking the mick out of the fucking mm. younger guy. But it's it's one of those things like it was like there's not anything really standoutious about him, but he's just a very solid performance. Yeah, I think for me the thing with Ruben is Ruben is your typical old timer. Yeah. Back in my day we used oil yeah. and it was fine. The interesting thing is that a lot of the story to get the story running actually hinges on Ruben. And particularly his unwillingness to use the telegraph. Yeah. Because when Ben dies, the doctor's like, oh, are you going to telegraph and tell people? He's like, no, I'll use semaphore in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it's like, a lot of the story kind of hinges on that. Because mm -hmm. no one knows what's happening here. There's no one coming out to support them. There's no... They're, like we're not holding it like oh the relief boat will be here in eight hours that there's none of that hmm. it's very much this old guy didn't know how to use the telegraph mm -hmm. because he didn't bother to learn <laughs> and so because of him we get the isolationist feel mm -hmm. of this story which actually makes him all the more interesting mm -hmm. in a way do you know and he is very racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, he's also very superstitious. And anyway, his suspiciousness of the Doctor and Leela isn't unwarranted. No. Leela, you know, for all we love her, like, she's a hard fucking person to explain to someone in the 1900s. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I can get him kind of being like, where did you come from? Mm. Oh, we came from space. It's like, I what now? <laughs> she hasn't really learned that art of cover story because <laughs> yeah. like this is the thing is like, the, like you're not giving the years to what this when this is set like right but it's like mm. you know you're we, we know that it's in the early 1900s and like mm. there's a lot of stuff kind of going wrong with like you know, the, the, you're fuzzy like, you're fucking like 50 odd years removed from like the crimean war so you know you had mm. fucking britain and russia like there's like 20 odd years i think or 30 odd years between that and the franco-prussian war so obviously those fucking powers are still kind of going at it and again it's like there could be spies it's like well why would anyone want to fucking spy on us 
you don't know. True, but you know, taking control of the lighthouse. Yeah, exactly. That that's the thing. No, like that's Vince's question. It's like he's like mm. he's not entirely wrong in his soup in his yeah. suspicions, but it's just yeah. because of his crotchety old man nature that it just comes across like I don't like foreigners. Yeah, to the point where no one realizes that like he's being impersonated by a friend. Yeah. Until he smiles. Yeah, in which case it's kind of creepy. The root, root and Ruben smiles, and you know you're dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is sad. <laughs> ravishing root and Reuben. Um, it's it's interesting to think, right, that a guy that, uh, and I said it before at the time, like that for a guy that really didn't think much of the show that he was working on, he's he again is another person that has consistently done a really good performance on the show mm-hmm. because Bruce was a great character in Enemy of the World. Yep, I think he's someone who's like, you know, he may not think a lot about. Like I said, the show he's on, but he thinks well of his acting. Yeah. 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 Always give it Um, your best, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then we have the young fella. So Vince Hawkins, who's just like, his name is is Hawkins. Like, (laughs) he just like, Let's just send him off to Treasure Island. Yeah. <laughs> off to Zanzibar to meet the Zanzibar variants. Exactly. <laughs> um, what were your thoughts on Vince? Uh, he really goes through the fucking rigor, like in the space of like what, like four or five hours. Poor bastard. Like. Yeah, no, poor bastard. <laughs> um, and so much of it was just spent there being like, mm, yeah, it's like, mm, just, like and just trapped up there on his own. I would be very curious to know that the the age of the character versus the age of the actor. Because he comes across as like someone that's like what like nineteen, twenty? Um I would place him in his early twenties. Yeah. I would say like twenty two, twenty three. Maybe. Because he plays him as such like at but then again I suppose it's like with everything that's going on, he is kind of regressing into this like uncertain type thing because like he he gets he gets spooked by Ruben's ghost stories. To the extent of, like, you know, when Ben's body goes missing, it's not like, oh, you know, someone could have fucking stolen the body. It's like, no, he had to have gotten up and he had to, he had to be the dead man that's risen because his soul can't rest. Um, mm. Then, like, there's the it, it's, it's stuff with Palmerdale. You know, it's like, I, I don't want to get involved in anything illegal. And he's, obviously, his head gets turned by money and then he burns it because he doesn't want to get any, involved in he doesn't want to be suspected of murdering the guy um i will say so john abbott was born in 1945 mm-hmm. which would have him be 30 all right ish. okay so he's when not he's, he's not playing a million miles away from it the, the character is younger anyway mm-hmm. um but and i would say of all the deaths that hit this story his is probably the most emotional death. It is, and I don't think it's given the response it deserves. No, it's it's not because Skinsale and Leela are the ones that does, that find the body. The doctor never comments on it, which is unfortunate because no. he like, he does. The doctor is very respectful towards Ben or towards um, Vince. Yeah, and yeah, I had that in my notes. So I'm sorry we never got to see the doctor's response to his death, and even Leela and Skinsale to some extent. It's not. I don't think it got the. I don't think it got the response it deserved. Mm. He deserved more. Um, this kind of like a case of like D eighty four, you know, his death should have gone mm. out with a bigger bang type thing. Yeah, 
Um, I want to prevent like the poor boy doesn't know what to do with pretty lady. Like, <laughs> <laughs> poor thing. But in fairness, he is shivers through and through. Mm-hmm. And we can see that in sense like you've got Parmadale all bluster and whatever. And he's like, I'm making her a cup of soup. I will deal with you in a minute. <laughs> and like he's like, I have to see to the lady first. I have to see to the lady first. He's very chivalrous and not easily pushed about. Do you know, like, Palmerdale is quite um, a domineering character, not physically, but sort of personality-wise. Mm-hmm. It'd be very easy to have been sort of being like, oh, oh, sorry, and like maybe dropping Adelaide's soup on the floor and, mm-hmm. and running off or something. But he doesn't. He, he stands his ground. Um, he has rules that he lives by. And he's quite rigid to them. I mean, yeah, he takes the money, but like he doesn't know what Palmerdale is up to. He's like, this man has offered me a hundred pounds, which in today's money, I mean, I, can't, I don't even know what the conversion would be. Um, but that's probably more than this guy makes in fucking a year. I mean, like mm. it, it, it's ridiculous. Um, so I did wonder initially why was he burning the money. Um, rather than just tossing it over the side or hiding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, it's probably just because he doesn't want them to think that he was caught up with Palmerdale. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like him not wanting to be a murder suspect, I suppose makes sense. Which is kind of sad, though, because I said he has such a good relationship with the Doctor. He's got quite, quite a nice relationship with Leela as well. Mm-hmm. That he doesn't think they'll believe him. That's quite sad. Hmm. Also, the extra sadness is that the last person he sees is Reuben. Yeah. And he dies thinking Reuben is the one that kills him. Yeah. Which is horrible. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think Vince's death is probably the saddest one. And I, I don't think it gets enough... That, that, it doesn't have enough, again. It doesn't have enough room to breathe. That that, that is um. Pardon the pun. Yeah, <laughs> that is something that I think is kind of prevalent in this story, and it, it is like we'll talk about it in the overall. But I think that, that's not a unique um statement. No. no, and maybe that's just the feel that they were going for. Yeah, so and we can maybe see that when we talk about the other mm-hmm. characters. So. We had Reuben and Vince, mm-hmm. and now we have the survivors of the boat. So we have Palmerdale, Skinsale, Harker, and Adelaide. Yeah. So do you want to do best to worst? I, I think worst to, <laughs> worst to best. Wor- worst, worst to, well, best is subjective. Worst to Harker. Yeah. Worst <laughs> okay. Yeah. Worst to Harker. Yeah. Because I was going to say, like, like, do we be like, you know, best character because that's Harker, or do we be like most, like, you know, engaging character might still be Harker. <laughs> um, Good. So who you're you're leading this? So okay. Your worst? Uh, my worst is Adelaide, and very very short and sweet. Fuck you. Seriously. Just that's all I got to say. Fuck you and well, fuck off. So when I when we first got introduced to Adelaide, I sort of saw it as a bit of a stereotype. And I was like, okay, here's Terence's Pearls of Pauline character mm. coming in. Um, and her response to Leela mm-hmm. is very... As people who... As people who love the character of Leela, mm-hmm. we're obviously like, fuck you, bitch! Yeah. <laughs> 
but originally I was trying to cut her attitude some slack because of the time like seeing a woman talking this way dressing in men's clothes it is very off form mm. you know it is really weird um and so you can sort of say like okay you know she's reacting the way any woman of her station probably would have in that situation but my god she got so annoying that that quickly left my mind well like okay commenting about the unusual the peculiarity of a woman doing a, a laborer's task mm. that's fine but c- commenting on her looks that's just the one word i said i would never say on this show ish but yeah but it's <laughs> but see, that's why initially i was like is she just referring to the fact that leela's wearing men's clothes because that's her initial reaction is like huh what the fuck is she wearing mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Like quickly, I got to. No, she just was annoying pain in the ass. Yeah, because like, because um, it was like, um, because skin cells. You know, like says that he's a like Leela. He thinks Leela's attractive, and then she's like, "Well, how long were you in India? Like the fucking so called savage you know, place that we call." Oh yeah, no, by that point she's an asshole. Yeah, and I was going. <laughs> yeah, as I said, she's the. But like, in the first minute, I was like, okay, you know reaction of the times or no, no by that point she's a total asshole yeah um, is it the one word i swore never to say on this show <laughs> that's what she is <laughs> um people slapping her is a bit much <laughs> uh, but again in the context of trying to snap her out of it mm. and get her to focus on what's happening completely understandable <laughs> mm-hmm. um do i think she like deserved to die no um do I think she was a character in way over her head? Yeah. Do I think she was incredibly fucking annoying? Also, yes. Very much so. <laughs> Did I think she had any redeeming qualities? Not really. Even her one redeeming quality, like she's quite um, loyal to Palmerdale, makes her an asshole. Yeah. To <laughs> I mean? So it's like, okay, you have no redeeming qualities, my friend. Um, I tried to give you the benefit of the doubt and then you just kept on being a bitch. So, no. Because it, like, it's interesting you say, like, you know, was she in over her head? Like, and usually this type of character reminds me of one individual, uh, Lambert from Alien. Hmm. Like, someone that's clearly a professional, like, in the sense of, like, she's wor- like, been working on the ship long haul and she knows her stuff. But the minute that, you know, it's like this thing popped out of our friend's chest and is now hunting us down, she falls to pieces. And you're like, you're like, She's such a detriment, and you're like, for fuck's sake. But at the, or everything's understandable. Whereas mm. here, it's just like, no, just, oh, just fuck off. Well, no, I think in terms of being over her head, I think it is very understandable Adelaide's position. Oh, no, like, no. Well, like, she's, she's a secretary who's stranded in this lighthouse, nearly drowned. Mm. Stranded in this lighthouse, and people are fucking dying left, right, and center all around her. That's completely understandable. Her attitude toward Leela, though, mm. and her fucking holier-than-thou attitude um, against Kinsale, mm-hmm. that is unredeemable. But in terms like comparing her to Lambert, the difference is that Lambert is a trained yeah, professional, professional I suppose, yeah. on her own ship. Mm. Whereas Adelaide is in a completely new environment with no control whatsoever. Um, she's still a thundering bitch. Mm. And whatever, but I think certain parts of her is understandable. Mm. 
just not forgivable. <laughs> yeah, just like, fuck, I don't like this character. <laughs> um, she's not as bad as whatever that the douchebag from Revenge of the Cybermen is. <laughs> um, right, so then we have Palmerdale. Palmerdale, I have the exact same reaction to Palmerdale that you had to Adelaide. He's a pompous, self-entitled asshole. No redeeming characteristics whatsoever, good riddance. Yeah, all I have is like, ah, the good old Victorian era gentry douchebag. <laughs> just like, and and the thing is, is like, see, I'm trying to find like equate like like just like a kind of equatable characters like for a kind of more mainstream thing like, or main even mm. mainstream like just more well known. And I feel like that he would have been very reminiscent of Billy Zane's character in Titanic. You know. Yeah. But the, the, that, like the, Billy Zane's character, is just like a lot. Even though he's an asshole, that guy's a lot better. He's a lot more interesting, and he's a lot more of an antagonist than this fucking guy. Who just just like, would you just shut up, please? Just shut the fuck up. Yeah, because I mean, like, even when Harker goes on, he's like, you know, you're the one who pushed us to leave in the fog. Mm. You're the one who said we should go faster than was actually capable of doing, and you used your money and your influence to get everyone around you to do exactly what you wanted. And now you're here and you're just demanding on everybody. But what I love, what I love is for all his money and all his perceived power, Mm -hmm. he can't send a fucking message. Mm -hmm. He needs Harker, the lower seaman, right? Because he wasn't the captain. He needs Harker. He needs Vince, the young lighthouse keeper who couldn't even imagine making as much money as as this man carries around in his wallet. He can't do the things these men can do. Even a simple one like sending a message. Which I just love. I love that juxtaposition of he has to bribe and pay and cajole Mm -hmm. to do something that to them is super simple. You know, I, I kind of, I kind of liked that. Yeah, I, I liked that sort of mm-hmm. "fuck you" to him. Like, yeah. to the so then there's skin sale. I thought he was Skinsdale, and then it was skin sale, and uh, I don't uh, yeah, I, I, the colonel, yeah, <laughs> the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, you think that he's like going to be like the kind of the noble hero that helps out? But like, mm. but basically, he only ever helps out when it suits his own benefit, mm. and yeah. as, and as well that. No, I've been wrestling with this uh, since I saw it, and it's like okay, there's obviously a, he seems fairly confident initially that whatever he can refute whatever Palmerdale says, because. When he gave all that information to Palmerdale, Palmerdale ripped up all the, the fucking blackmail evidence he had against him. But then he like he wrecks the the telegraph, which is like conceivably like the one way like you know, their one and only lifeline out of the place. But he wrecks it for the benefit of his his own standing. Mm. And then it's like, okay, you think he's gonna have his redeeming thing like where he goes down like you know, like no doctor, I'll go down with you like to help find the diamonds of Palmerdale's body, and then the doctor just like throws on the diamonds because like the rest of them are fucking useless, and he then just starts scrambling for them. And so, like when the doctor comes up and he gives like you know like um, dead with honor 
or whatever it is. I like Tom's version of it because it comes across as like the sarcastic way that it should fucking come across. I don't know. I think I think Tom. My thing with Gonzalo is that at first I liked him, mm-hmm. then I didn't, then I did again. Yeah. Um. He's nowhere near as self-important as Palmerdale. Mm. He, you know, he was an officer. He served. Do you know? Mm-hmm. He doesn't put massive demands on Vince or on Ruben. He's not making any demands. Mm-hmm. Do you know? He's like, look, we stranded ashore. Thanks very much for the hospitality. We'll just wait till morning and we'll see it out. When I start to not like him, though, is when we find out more about him and Palmerdale and the fact that Skindle gave up this financial information to get out of debt, mm-hmm. basically. With Palmerdale, and you're like, okay. And you can imagine that originally he had no issue with it because they were going back to London together. Do you know? And Palmerdale would use the information and it'll be fine. But now, because they've had so many head to heads, and because Palmerdale is so desperate to send this message, Skinsale doesn't know what's in the message. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Because of the back and forth, they're like, is Palmerdale going to throw me under the bus? Like, is he going to, like, you know, benefit financially and ruin me at the same time? Which originally Palmerdale wouldn't have done because it didn't serve his purposes. So where I hate him is the fact that he's willing to put everyone in a bad situation to cover his own ass. Mm -hmm. Do you know? He wrecked their one communication device. Now, I'll be honest, at this point in the story, no one was fucking using it anyway. Mm-hmm. Do you know? So, be that as it is. Like, do you know what I mean? But, he does make that bad decision. And so, like, when Adelaide's like, oh, you killed him or whatever, I'm like, she goes on for fucking way too long. Mm-hmm. What's understandable, her initial reaction of, yeah, he had a motive. Except, he was downstairs. <laughs> And Vince didn't see him come upstairs. So mm. when the fuck was he meant to have killed him? Yeah. Do you know? Um, but then at the end, like when he's like, you really believe that this is a monster, don't you? Mm-hmm. He does get his fucking ass in gear. Mm. Now, yeah, it's for self-preservation, but he gets his ass in gear. Do you know? And yeah, he goes down and he, you know, checks over Palmerdale's body. But like, it's not like he just handed the doctor the biggest diamond. No. He handed him all of them. Yeah. He's like, here, here's what you need. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't consider, like, is his death him being greedy? Yes. But I would actually more equate it to him being stupid. Do you know? As opposed to running back upstairs and getting the diamonds later. Hmm. Do you know, he decides to fuck it, I'll go for them now because they may not be here later or whatever. I don't think it's um, like, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it is like stupidity and greed. Yeah, but like, I don't think that takes away from the fact that he was helping out Leela with the stuff upstairs and like he was getting stuck in. I don't think his greedy moment in death takes away from that. And I don't, I think his death i think the with honor part is you know giving him more credit than he's due he didn't die with honor he Mm. died being stupid Mm -hmm. but up until that point he behaved 
with like in that particular sequence of events from the moment they found Vince through to the end he behaved with honor he was getting stuck in with everybody else and so I actually don't like the idea of them just laughing after his death I don't like the idea of you know dead with honor as a sort of sarcastic comment because like hey the man just fucking died and yeah he wasn't a fully altruistic person Mm. but other than that one bad action of wrecking the fucking telegraph he wasn't an obstruction to anybody and he got stuck in and helped (laughs) do you know so I'd, I'd kind of challenge you a little bit on the he deserved sarcastic comment bit. Well, like, see, but see, I don't think he did. But, but the thing is, like, then is that, like, okay, you know, he really has no choice but to get stuck in. He does. He could, you know, be like, you know, I don't believe you. He could continue, you know, choosing not to believe. But instead, he does believe. He gets. He doesn't challenge anything, and he doesn't like again. He, it's for me. It's the kind of fact that he went to Palmerdale's body. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to. The doctor could have gone on his own, mm. but he went. And I don't know. I don't, maybe I have to read the novelization. Maybe it was always intended to be a greedy action. Mm. But given the fact that everyone around him is dead, and he still chooses to go down the stairs and face the beast, I mean, it might he died stupid and greedy. He went downstairs honorably. Do you know? Like, see, this, this is the thing that was where it's. I think you would be able to tell the full measure of him in a scenario that, like, like we played the what if game last week. We, play, I think, this will be the what if game here again. Right? Say that, um, all three of them were trying to outrun the route on. Okay, and he's in the lead. Does he like, and you know, it's like that sound like you know, like oh, like you know, we can't, you know, closing the door, right? Is he the type of person in that scenario that would close the door if he got out of trouble first, or would he wait for him to come in? Because we've seen before like, that he would wreck something to set to preserve his his name, essentially. Do we think? Th- but he didn't try to kill anyone. He no, there's he- a difference between protecting yourself against a slimy prick like Palmerdale. Hmm. And it making a bad choice, like ruining the fucking thing is mm. bad choice all around. But there's a difference between that and being a selfish prick who leaves everyone else to die. And I don't see him being that second person. Do you know, he yeah. could have very easily told the doctor, oh, Palmerdale had diamonds. Mm. I'll stay here and help Leela because it'll be easier for one person to get past the route on them too. Mm. No, look, but he doesn't. But you ra- you do raise a valid point of like over the fact of like you know no one seemed to be using the the telegraph at any given time until like it's pointed out that it's sabotaged. That's mm. like, no, that that's true. But he does take that faculty away from people. He does take that that option sure, away. Yeah, and, and and that's and that's a bad choice. Yeah. But that was him protecting his reputation against an asshole. Yeah. But then again, he could say, once he realizes the ramifications that. of that, though. And once he realizes the situation that they're in, and he sees Adelaide dying, he sees Vince being dead, like you know, he used to be he used to be an officer, mm. do you know, and that comes through a little bit. But he used to be a rich officer, so yeah, there's diamonds on the floor. Yeah, and that thing's a little bit further down the stairs. 
he doesn't understand how it works. Do you know? Yeah. So yeah, I'll I'll just <laughs> I'll try again. I don't know. For me, I think you know he's not nowhere near as bad as Palmerdale. I would almost chalk him up there with Ruben in the sense that Ruben was a suspicious, cantankerous. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's that's a fair comparison because like because like I I still don't like Skin Cell for what he did. That's that's that, that's the kind of overriding thing. I like him more than I like the other two, but I still don't mm-hmm. like him for, because of what he did and what he condemned the remaining however many of them. Yeah, again, though, like I mean, I sort of chalk it with the fact that like they were not, they weren't using it. Anyway. Yeah, like, and it's, <laughs> the doctor never used it. No, no, and I, I, and it's you know what I mean. Uh, I think I think it's just and the doctor only commented on it because he noticed the fucking thing was broken. He wasn't going. The doctor was never going to use it anyway. Hmm. Do you know? Um, and again, he doesn't know the full situation when he makes that choice. Yeah, you know, like, I think that's like, the, that. That was the kind of one wrestling thing that was like you know was the mitigating factor is that like they don't know that they're being hunted down. However, they are in a sort of emergency situation that would require. Like they've just crashed their boat into a fuck, and like they've lost however many people on the on the, on it. Yeah, but like you know, um, Reuben was always going to be signaling to land. As far as he knows, Reuben is still alive. Yeah, he doesn't know Reuben's dead, mm. and Reuben was going to signal land in the morning anyway. So, is he fully redeemable? No, but do I think the dead with honor line should be sarcastic? Also, no. I don't think he deserves a sarcastic death. I think that's unfair. Okay. But then we have someone who I think we can both agree is a good guy. Yes. And that's Harker. Yes. I do kind of want to see like the ongoing adventures of Harker and Hawkins. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. No, I, I like he's just, he's a good man that's in a bad situation because of the actions of one of someone else. Hmm. And the actions of two someone else is really, do you know what I mean? Because you have the actions of Palmerdale and you have the actions of his captain. Yeah. Do you know? Like he says himself, like the captain was, was an... kind of weak. Yeah. Do you know? He was afraid he wouldn't get another ship if he turned down Palmerdale. Mm. Or whatever. Um, so yeah, his life is fucked by like all of these people who have power over him. Mm. Um. But I do love how he stands up for himself and how he stands up for his crew. Yeah. Do you know, like, even though, yeah, the captain agreed, he sort of lays blame squarely at Palmerdale. It's like, you hold, you held all of our life, our lives in your hands financially. He was never going to say no to you, like, and you knew it, which is why you demanded it. Um, I love as well that like, he gets stuck in and he's very no-nonsense. <laughs> he's like, yeah. well, Harker, I need to do this thing. <laughs> he just gets to us. Do you know what I mean? I, and I, I, um, I, I liked it because, again, I put that down to the way that the doctor treated him. Hmm. Yeah, and and I said, like, it's it's just something that Tom's doctor was very good at, you know? Um, but no, Harker is just, I need to be of use. Where can I be of use? Here is where I'm useful type thing. Yeah. I also love how he doesn't, even though he's been through a lot, um, he doesn't really judge Leela. He kind of questions a little bit, like, you mean oh. keep the boiler pressure high? Yeah, so keep I, the boy pressure? I was wondering why you like, you were like, but, why would the hell would he be judging Leela? <laughs> well, no, everyone else was. Hmm. Do you know, in some capacity. But he, 
he didn't. Mm. But, Do you know? But I suppose because he's a working class lad, like so, he would have. He would have. Yeah, but I, I like I like that. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. he, even when she's being completely fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like mm. gives a boiler pressure height. Like yeah, that. Like okay, cool. And I, and I um and you can I sort of imagine the two of them just shoveling coal mm-hmm. for hours and end. <laughs> just the two of them together shoveling coal. And I, like and again and again comparing like you know his journeys on the seas to their her journey in like you know space and time and all this type of mm-hmm. shit. Um, again, he thinks he's killed by someone that he knows. Yeah, and like that is that's I think is like the tragedy of stories like these, where like where where there's an imposter or a replicant or a duplicate or whatever. The last people, the last people that the victims see are someone they assume is a friend. Or in Parmadaren's confused sense, the giant green blob. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, Harker's death, I think Harker's death gets reacted to, but more by the doctor than pretty much anybody else. Yeah. Um, yeah, any of the other characters that died, I think the doctor reacts more to Harker. I think that's because he puts so much on him. Mm-hmm. And Harker just straight away jumped in no problem um i kind of would have liked to have seen the doctor's reaction to vince in the same way we got to see it in yeah oh yeah no definitely definitely well how don't we talk about like the cause of all these deaths (laughs) yes the rutan what do you think about our glowing green friend so the long fabled enemies of the santarans not quite what we were expecting or what quite what i was expecting but in a good way. No. <laughs> but I, 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 I liked it because I thought because I remember like the very first time when I ever saw this, I was like, "It's a big fucking jellyfish." But then I was mm-hmm. then I was thinking of like that. He said like that he is a scout that has been specifically trained to do this in, insertion type thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, I like the fact then because like, he's not a representative. He's not the representative of the everything that is a rootin. Like so, the next time if we ever do encounter him, spoiler, we don't. Um, it's like we could see something completely different. Because hmm. like every time we see it, you know, like we talk about like the Daleks, you know, oh, there's the Daleks from the logistics division, the logistics from like the engineers. Like they're still the fucking crazy murder pepper pot that they 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 all are. You know, they they all serve the base basic function, except some of them can't do maths. Um, same with the Cybermen, you know. Uh, some of them have a dome with a brain in it, others just have like you know, are completely cased in the metal. There's no difference. Santarans, as much as I love them, they're essentially just killbots. They're cloned killbots. Um, whereas this has a lot of potential because if they're specifically trained to do certain things, then there's a variety of obstacles that could face the Doctor and companions further on down the line. Um. So I thought it, I thought it was actually pretty cool, and I like the fact that much like we saw with Steer Steyer, mm. he's taking his time, he's experimenting, he's sussing them out. So it's not just the the beast in the fucking darkness; it's actually an intelligent beast in the darkness that's learning everything it possibly can about them. Yeah, I'd agree. I. I don't know what I was expecting. I didn't know until the doctor literally said, you know, that it's a rootin'. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was meant to be. So 
Um, I don't know what I was expecting about the Rufans. This wasn't it. No. <laughs> um, I didn't know we'd ever see them, actually. I couldn't remember when we did trivia around Santarin if we'd actually discussed it at the time mm-hmm. if we were ever going to see a Rufan. So I didn't think we ever did. And so I'd imagine them more insect-like. Like you, you would be. I, I don't know why. I sort of had that feeling of like this clone army versus this sort of hive queen insect-like army. I don't know why I got that idea in my head. There is an element um, of a hive mentality because the Rutan keeps referring to it as we. Yeah, but I was. I don't know why I had more of a yeah. um, an insect-like I, I, um, kind of like from um, Ender's Game. Like yeah, the buggers and Ender's Game. Mm. I was kind of imagining something more like that. Um, that being said, though, it is really freaky, mm. right? You know, it's very similar to what we had with Terror of the Zygons. Mm. When you can have someone who it's not that they're taking over someone's body, it's that they're recreating. It's like they didn't know for like what an episode mm-hmm. more that Reuben was dead. Yeah, I think it's like the entirety of the third episode. They they don't realize that Reuben is dead until the very end. Yeah, um, which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plan is solid. I love, in a sort of morbid way, the fact that like it stole Ben's body mm-hmm. to to learn, explore it, and investigate it and learn. Um, you know, like I said, Exterior was doing experiments. Which is also a good thing. But here, it's like with each kill, it learns more. Mm -hmm. So it killed the first one it encountered. I was like, okay, what the fuck is this? Let's figure this out. And then it killed the next one. And this time was able to impersonate it. And you sort of get the feeling that like it became more and more. It knew more and more about humans with each kill. Mm -hmm. Which is terrifying mm-hmm. and the ruthlessness of it um particularly i think the one that struck me the most was actually adelaide because even though she was an absolute thundering a-hole mm-hmm. it just caught her and just thump, she was gone mm-hmm. that was it do you know what i mean there is no defense it's just boom gone mm-hmm. um which is terrifying so was it the routines i was expecting no, I was expecting something a bit more like the buggers from Ender's yeah. Game. But certainly interesting. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, like you said, that this one was trained for this mission. And the fact that he didn't, it didn't care, I say he, but like it didn't mm-hmm. care if it died. Mm-hmm. And it didn't care if everyone on Earth died. Because if we can get one attack off this planet... Mm-hmm. I don't care if this planet and all of us who are on it at that time die mm. a death. If we get one attack off this planet, it's all worth it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you son of a bitch. Because <laughs> yeah, like, and it's, it is a very interesting design choice to go with because like you take a look at the Santarans and you're told like they're, mm. they're this huge, massive clone military machine. What the hell could be keeping them in an endless war. Like, what's the opposing force? I wonder if the massive part of the opposing force here is intelligence. Yeah, and when it, and your enemy can impersonate you, mm. 
down to clothing and whatever. Um, yeah, there are fights on great battlefields. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are, right? That's the Santaran way of life. And maybe there are Rutans who just run in and electrocute the shit out of people. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's fine too. Um, but I sort of imagine the reason it's been going on for so long is subterfuge. Mm. Oh, espionage. Yeah. Like, I, th- I think it's a case of numbers versus industry. Uh, or industriousness, shall we say, more so than industry. Mm. Um, because I can imagine, like, the Rutans have, like, huge, like, these amazing weapons that they're capable of operating, and they, they don't need the numbers, because you said, like, there's also the, the subterfuge and the espionage element to things. So I find it a small bit disappointing that mm. this is the last time we're ever going to see them for, like, I don't think they ever make an appearance. They hopefully they'll come back soon, mm. because I love the Santarans. But we've actually seen they have a worthwhile enemy, that is also mm. a worthwhile enemy within the context of like the, for the Doctor. I think it would be a really challenging Doctor Who story. I mean, challenging in a good way, like challenging the Doctor to have the Doctor caught in the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And and not with the oh there's innocence in the middle and they're threatening both sides. No, he literally is in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And does he feel any sympathy you know, like say you have the Rutans are under siege mm-hmm. from the Santarans. Is there any sympathy for the Rutans in that situation? Like if he was forced to pick a side, would he, could he pick a side mm-hmm. between those two? And I think for most fans, it would be like, oh, go with the Rutans, because we haven't seen as much of them. Mm-hmm. But in this story, they show that they are just as evil mm-hmm. and malicious as the Santarans are. Yeah. Um, I think that would make a really interesting story, just to land the Doctor and Companion in the middle of it. Mm. No, I completely agree. Completely agree. And like the only way to get back to the TARDIS or whatever is to either let this attack play out, or stop it, and either way would result in thousands dying on one side or the other. Mm. Um, I think that would make a really uh, a challenging story for the Doctor, particularly the modern era Doctor who's been through as much as they have. Yeah, no, hundred percent agree. So we have come to our final segment. Mm. We have our overall thoughts. So here we give our sort of overall thoughts and feelings on the story. Mm-hmm. We give it a score of five. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we agree. Sometimes we disagree. Mm-hmm. And then we have a look and see what that does to our averages overall. Mm-hmm. So Paddy, again, you did socials this week. Mm-hmm. So over to you. Overall thoughts. All right. So, you know me very well. I do. You know this is the type of story that I live and breed for. Yes, I do. That being said, Hmm. there's something here that stops it from being the thing that I know and love. Hmm. Uh, And I think it comes squarely down to the body count fodder in this story. Hmm. Okay? Now, this type of story, there's always going to be body count fodder. Uh, Always. Sometimes people aren't like it's. It's very rare that 
no one gets out alive with the exception of like obviously the two plot armored mm-hmm. heroes uh usually you think like there's one or two that might that might make it um and in the scenarios where like one or two do make it like you're kind of hoping like oh which one of them will be you know who's go, who's going to who are the ones that are going to make it out and i think the what like basically it's like with the exception of harker the the, the three survivors i just i don't care about you like i i, I really don't Nothing you're doing is making me want to see you survive this story. All right. Mm. Um, and that is the thing which like, where in these type of stories, I want as many people, or at least I want to be interested in everyone so that when they die, I feel their death somehow. You know, I want, I, I, I want to get some bit of emotion out of their death other than, eh. And that's what I got here for Adelaide Palmerdale and, well, skin sale. I was more like, you know, like, oh, you fucking idiot. Um, with the other two, I was just like, oh, Jesus Christ, would you just stop soaking up screen time and just fuck off? Um, so like that kind of that took it out of me a small, took me out of the story a small bit because mm-hmm. it's a very atmospheric story, really, really is. Mm-hmm. It's like it is incredibly challenging, and all fucking credit to Terence and Patty on this one. It is incredibly hard to pull off a fucking mur like a a base under siege murder story in a lighthouse. <laughs> like, you know? Yes, there's other, there's rooms, but they're all up. <laughs> it's it's incredibly fucking difficult to do. And they did it really, really well. They did it mm. fantastically. Um, the Dr. Leal's dynamic here is great. It's really, really good. There is strong performances here by Ruben, Vince, mm. And even Harker, you know, like obviously, like, I felt something to his death because it was a really good performance by the actor. Um, so I'm giving it a four point five out of five. This was nearly perfect, nearly. And like, this was the thing. I was like, my annoyance with these characters was so fucking much that it was actually uh, when I finished watching it last night, I was like, I don't even think this cracks a four. Like it was like I was like, at one point it was oh, a tri- no. at one point it was a three point seven five and then I was like going, but just I I reevaluated as I was doing my character notes uh, today, so like whenever I finish watching a story I always give like a uh, my immediate thought score, but see I watch each episode on a day to day basis I don't I don't watch it all in the one go, so sometimes I might lose a bit of stuff but then when I redo my character notes and when I look over the summary again, it's like, ah, there's an awful lot I'm, I'm not giving credit to here. So then that does affect the scores. And then there's other times where it's like, no, I'm giving too much credit to this. <laughs> Fuck it, the score goes down. Here, thankfully, it's a case where the score went up. So it's a 4.5. That's not bad. Hmm. It's not bad at all. I'm very interested to see your one because like, you keep saying like you're, you're finding stuff to nitpick at. It's like, that's usually very high. Yeah. Um, I like this one. Um, ten minutes in, I was fully absorbed in what's happening. Um, the setting, the characters, even the horrible characters. You're saying that they sort of pulled you out of it. Mm-hmm. For me, they kind of drew me in more. All right. Because part of me was because this like weird, like horrible part of me didn't want them to survive, and I was curious to see how they how they'd bite it like mm. Adelaide's was probably the most shocking mm. because like she's about to run upstairs and she just gets caught do you know what I mean um but like and then like towards the end I was like oh my god is because I obviously I'm not familiar with that poem neither am I and I was like you know is um is 
Skinsale going to be the one that survives and you sort of have this sort of idea in your mind of yeah they destroyed the root and ship and then the fog clears the sun rises you have a you know a, a concerned ship coming up and all they see is um I keep fucking forgetting his name all they see is Skinsale and how does he explain it with the mm. doctor and Leela running away you know um, and I was like, oh, that would, I'm like, actually kind of curious, like, how would he play it? Mm-hmm. You know, would he play it as there's been a disaster? Would he try and blame everybody else? Like, how would he explain it? And so for him then to die, I'm like, oh, holy sh- this is what we're doing? Okay, cool. <laughs> They're all gone. Mm. Okay, I know the Doctor and Leela get out of it. How do they get out of it? I knew Leela got blinded because I mentioned him trivia last week. I was like, okay, how is that happening? So for me, I was actually fully absorbed into it the whole time. Even the horrible characters, like, it's like watching Titanic. Mm. All of the first class characters, with the exception of, like, three of them, mm-hmm. are right fucking assholes. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you want them to go down with the fucking Titanic, though. No, like, you see, that's, <laughs> that, that's, yeah, like, that, that was the thing, but, like, it's like, I suppose... <sighs> like, if everyone was lovely mm. and there was no internal tension to the story... Like the tension between Palmerdale and um, fuck me, why does his name keep Skinzo? The the blow up between Adelaide and Skinzo. If we didn't have that, I think the story would be very boring. Because you need conflict internally to sort of distract you from the villains. So that when the villain hits, it it's driving more down in my opinion no 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 no, it's it's a very valid point because like i I think like you know me like my favorite movie is the thing and the conflict of that is the conflict of that is built in by the fact that all these people who know each other really well none of them know who's being mimicked so like there's that element of like the paranoia agency whereas here they're bringing that outside conflict in before there's even the fucking uh the (laughs) creatures hunting them down um but no, like absolutely, and I think it it possibly it would have been cool if like the the creature kept uh, hopping bodies or kept changing its form. Because one thing I thought was kind of cool was that when he takes over Ruben's form, he doesn't take him over from properly. Like his color is very drained, and he's mm. it's like he's in a suit as opposed to mm. being Ruben. So maybe yeah. like you know the more people he would have. You, if there was a say like a higher body count, you know, the more people the mm. creature killed, the more human like it actually became. Yeah, but maybe, but like, yeah, for me, it's like it all, it all pulled me. Like literally, I was just sat there, you know, stuffing my face with dinner, just watching, being like, "This is great, fucking loving it." <laughs> Particularly given my concerns over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Around the fact that I didn't like the direction it was going. Like, I love Philip Hinchcliffe's era, but towards the end, I'm like, dude, what the. It, it crossed a line for me personally. And here I'm like, this is the Doctor Who I love. This is it. It's. There's a line. I can see it. It's right there. But I'm on this side of it. <laughs> Do you know? Um, I loved it. I think Leela was fantastic in this. Um, some great moments for her. I think the Doctor was really well presented in this. Um, some great dynamics between the characters. Like I said, when you have a character like Skinsale, where one minute I liked him and then I didn't, he was an asshole. 
and then he, I kind of liked him again. Mm. I like that. I like that back and forth. So, um, I was saying, and like you kind of commented on, it, like you, know, I was looking for something to criticize the Doctor on. I was looking for something to criticize Leela on. Did either of those two things take me out of the story? No, no, didn't. I gave it a five. Ah, right, cool. <laughs> but I, 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 even though we're like we're not aligned on this one, I actually like that you gave this a five. I, I like it when you're when you give stories that you haven't seen before in any capacity yeah. at all when you're giving them a five because like i don't know it's, it's weird it's just because like you're going you're you're literally going into the unknown now and the fact that you're, you're ranking stuff as high, that high it's great you know yeah i was like i mean i was getting concerned last week you did yeah i was like you were not a huge fan you were not like a huge fan. you're not a fan of towns going triangle i am not elements of no. it yes but this the thing itself, no. But it itself, no. Will I watch it again? Probably not. Would you? I'll probably watch Leela's clips. That's about it. Would you watch Robots of Death again? I'd be more inclined to. Because hmm. there's more in Robots of Death I liked. Yeah. Than there was in Talons. Like, Talons, I just... Like, every single scene was massively fucking racist. <laughs> like, I can't actually get through this. Because yeah. um, I think the, the biggest... The biggest uh, ones of last season you didn't particularly enjoy were Deadly Assassin and um, Talons. Talons, yeah. yeah. Robots of Death, I liked. I had some criticisms of it. But yeah, yeah. Sa- it the same with uh, Face of Evil. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I was getting kind of concerned that you know, it would be that case of like what we said. Of like, oh, I love the Doctor and Sarah. And now... Blair. I'm not like I haven't seen any of these stories before. Um, next week's story I saw once, twelve years ago, maybe. Uh, it would have been before Elizabeth Sladen passed away. Yeah, so. no, I'm just I'm trying to get the time. Do, 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 do. Yeah, about, te- about te- 10, 10, 12, ago. 11 years ago. Yeah, it was before Elizabeth Sladen passed away yeah. because I'd seen it when I met her. Mm-hmm. So. It was before then, and that was before season three of Sarah Jane, so. Um, I don't remember anything of it. <laughs> and so I was really concerned that, like, all these stories I hadn't seen, I was like, oh, fuck, was there a reason I didn't watch these? Hmm. Do you know, and I didn't want that to be the case. So I'm really glad that, like, you know, my love of the Philip Hinchcliffe era kind of petered towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um... But I'm glad that we have new season, and for me at least, five right out of the gate. Mm. That's fucking brilliant. Um, and I'm I'm really liking that. I mean, the last season opener that I gave a five to was Terror of the Zygons, which a very similar feel here, but much more confined mm-hmm. this time around, um, which is great. So, good opener though, in all round though. I mean, you gave it a 4.5, mm-hmm. which I mean, so that's... Also, a good opener all around. Also, you're an impartial observer in the Santaran Rutan War because you also gave Time Warrior a five. I did, yes. <laughs> yeah. I also gave Robot a five. Yeah. <laughs> and three doctors a five. I give a I've given a fair number of season openers yeah. a five. <laughs> uh, more than I maybe would have thought. Um but yeah, so I'm actually I'm looking forward to the season a lot more now 
than I was. Like last week, I was like, oh shit. Well, it's a new producer as well, and like mm. there is a kind of a thing where it's just like that the new producer wants you to get away from the Hammer Horror Hinchcliffe style era, and like the first story is like a fucking murder thing in a lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't think necessarily was getting away from the Hammer Horror. I think he wants you to get away from the excessive the excessiveness of things. Yeah, of it. Um, like again, why all the opium last week? <laughs> like, so unnecessary <laughs> um but yeah i'm looking forward to to this season when it comes and next week we have a, a story i have seen but it was 12 years ago which is the invisible enemy yes which is going to introduce probably one of the one of the most marmite companions mm-hmm in Doctor Who history. <laughs> Actually, sorry, no. I, Either you love him or you hate him. <laughs> I remember it was 11 years ago. <laughs> Specifically? Yes, because I picked up the DVD in uh, Telford Comic Con in 2011. Ah. Yeah. Did you, so it was after. It was before she died, but after you met her. Oh, I thought I'd seen it before then. No, you might have seen Canine and Company. You might have seen Canine and Company. Maybe I had acquired it. Yes. Because they came in a box set. That's why I have it. Yeah. Because they came in a box set, the two of them. Yes. I gave um, you the box set. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Very much. <laughs> All right. But anyway, next week, guys. Thank, thank you for remembering my life. You're welcome. I appreciate it. <laughs> next week, guys, we will be going on to The Invisible Enemy. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.